Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Ben Bernstein, otherwise known as Dr. B, to the show. Dr. B has a doctorate in applied psychology and has been a performance psychologist for over 44 years. He is a performance coach and a webinar leader in stress reduction, and as such, he has become known as the Stress Doctor. He is also an educator and author. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, learn more about his career, and his forthcoming book, The Threefold Path to Optimal Living, and hear his advice for those interested in the field of psychology. Dr. B, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Brad. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm glad that you're taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. First of all, tell me a little bit about your undergraduate studies and when you first took an interest in psychology. Well, I'll start with the latter part of that question. I, uh, my father was a very well-respected clinical psychologist. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a, you know, there's a big backstory there. Um, uh, when my mother, my mother uh, directed plays for the Parent Teacher Association, they were kind of original plays. And in one of them, uh, it featured a child psychologist. And I was cast at nine years old as a child psychologist. So, <laughs> so it has quite a history to it. Um, my undergraduate studies were um, in English, uh, English literature and um, sociology. Uh, I took a couple of courses in uh, my undergraduate years in psychology, but that was not my main focus. I think you attended Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Massachusetts. Is that Bowdoin, right? Bowdoin. Yeah, the W is silent. Bowdoin College. Oh, okay. That's correct. Okay. Well, good. And then after that, um, you know, you received your bachelor's degree, uh, as you said, in uh, English and sociology. And then after that, at what point did you kind of decide, hey, I want to continue my graduate uh, degree? And, and did you decide that while you were in undergrad? Or did you know all along that you wanted to continue your graduate studies? No, I didn't at all. It's a great question. Um, when I was graduating from college, it was 1969. It was the height of the Vietnam War. And I had planned to and was applying to um, schools in drama. I was uh, very active in uh, acting and directing theater at Bowdoin. And, um, but uh, I was highly draftable at the time. I had a little lottery number and, um, I really do and still do believe in national service. Uh, uh, most unusually, there was an option for men my age, if you didn't want to um, join the military, that you could teach in what were then called ghetto schools in major metropolitan areas when I was from New York City. Um, and that would uh, be equivalent to going in the army. So. Uh, I actually just by by fate, I guess would be the word, um, switched to uh, this program that put men my age, young men my age in uh, public schools. And a part of that program was enrollment in graduate program in education. And um, so you were simultaneously put in a classroom and then you're also engaged in this um, uh, graduate studies in education. So that became, that started my involvement in education. And it was from that, that I um, got involved with um, 
new developments in education, mostly that were happening in England. I got, I'm really cutting this story short, but I, I got um, invited uh, to teach and run a research project at the University of Toronto. And part of my um, uh, contract was I asked them to get me an enrollment in the graduate program in psychology. Now, um, I don't know if I can really adequately answer well, like what that was all about, other than I think, you know, from what I've learned of myself over the last 50 plus years, that I am, I would call myself a natural psychologist in terms of listening and observing and being able to feel um, uh, compassion for where people are at, but more particularly, and this came later, being able to be very sensitive to where I sensed that they were actually going, where they were headed and what was blocking them from that. So it was through that, that program, while I was actually running a research project, that I got into a graduate program in psychology and I got the master's degree and that led directly into the PhD. So that's how you ended up at the University of Toronto. And, um, so thank you for that backstory. And I should mention to our audience that uh, you received your Master of Arts and your doctorate uh, in applied psychology. But as an aside, and this is kind of a different uh, theme in your in your personal background, as well as your educational background, is you also have a Master of Arts in music composition. So we're going to talk about uh, kind of that side of your um, uh, experience a little bit later on, but one yeah. thing. Well, oh, go Thank you for bringing that up. The masters at the University of Toronto was a master in education, MED, and then much, much later, I got the MA in um, in composition. Thank you, thank you. Yes, uh, I even have that on my cheat sheet. But I was looking at that. Uh, I, I was looking at the music composition as the MA. So thank you for uh, correcting me. Um, I should mention that you you just mentioned that you're, you're skipping ahead a little bit, and I don't want to skip ahead too much because sure. you have had extensive involvement in performing arts. And, and for those who want to learn more about your story, you have a nice about page, uh, my story. And as a young child, you were a prodigious uh, piano player, and you were trained actually by Viola Spolin, uh, and he created... Uh, um, um, and publicly produce original films and plays with psychiatric parents in Australia and U.S. But the other thing that I found interesting when I was researching you was um, you, you've been an educator for over, you know, like you said, very early age, and that equates to over 50 years now. But you also uh, have worked with people as a performance coach, and we're going to talk about that um, a little bit later, too. Sure. One other interesting thing that I wanted to mention was that you actually have some history um, going overseas and helping out the education um, with with people over, I think you already mentioned over in, you, you've taught entry level in, you know, all the different levels of the educational system. And I think I read someplace that you were originally trained in London and yes. then, yeah, and then with the British infant schools in the late 60s, and then you received some major grants from both America and, and Canadian governments for That's some correct. of this work. That's correct. When I started teaching in uh, Brooklyn as part of this program, um, I was very shocked, actually, to see how little the schools had changed since I was a child, and particularly teaching in a very um, impoverished area of Brooklyn, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. Um, 
I, the conditions were just terrible. And the way I felt the children were being treated, um, I really um, knew that there was something better. And I had a, um, uh, a, I had a grant actually from the then Department of Health, Education and Welfare, HEW. And the, that grant was given to just a very small selection of men my age who were in this kind of program to um, do good in American education. And I appealed to my draft board to go to London where the schools, there was a lot of write up at the time about these very advanced progressive schools in very poor neighborhoods in London. So I got the grant and got permission of the draft board and I went um, to London to actually be trained and then in fact to teach in the school in which I was trained. It's interesting that you, you've been, uh, you've traveled a lot, you've trained a lot, you've educated a lot. Right. Um, I, I usually like going into your career a little bit later. Let's go back to your educational sure. journey for a second. After you um, attended the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada, um, can you tell me in kind of in retrospect what you liked about the university and the program, even though you, you, you almost made a deal with them, hey, if I'm going to work with you and for you, please get me into this graduate uh, program. Now looking back, what did you like about the university and the program? Yeah, well, I didn't almost make a deal. I made a deal. And okay. <laughs> so, um, well, the, um, the program that I was in at the UT um, was in uh, housed in the um, School of Education at the University of Toronto, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And there was a lot of very interesting research work being done there. That's what I was hired to to a research project there. And they had a program in applied psychology, a PhD in applied psychology there. And so one of the things that I liked was just the uh, level of interest and commitment to innovative research. And my research project was actually one of those um, projects. Um, the other thing that I liked uh, a lot was um, the engagement in my internship. So because it was a clinical program, clinically oriented program, um, we had to uh, have an internship. And I really lucked out on that one to be assigned to a, uh, one of the foremost clinics in Toronto for child, adolescent and family therapy. And the exposure and training that I got there was simply exceptional. Um, the team of people, their care, their commitment, their um, engagement in what they were doing. Um, it couldn't have hit me at a better time because I was very open and wanting that kind of thing. Um, I would say that the coursework, um, this, and this is really not a slight on um, the U of T or the program. It's really more about North American education. The academics of the program were not particularly engaging for me. Um, I have a lot to say about um, North American education generally and how it's kind of like a get through it uh, mentality to just go from one thing to the next to the next. And not generally not really absorbing what you're being taught, which is all valuable and necessary and meaningful. But um, because of, particularly because I had the exposure to the most effective teaching methods I've ever encountered since then, since the late 60s and early 70s, um, in a certain way, almost everything else pales by comparison because that level of that type of education was all based on 
engagement, on action, on being involved in what you are learning, not simply sitting there and receiving it. There's a Chinese proverb, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. So um, that led me to, uh, I think another part of your answer to the question, because when I got to writing my dissertation and had to propose a topic, the general consensus and advice that I got was just choose something super simple, do a really easy research study, you know, like make it really simple, get out of here. And I thought to myself, and I remember this very distinctly, I thought to myself, I'll be darned if I'm gonna finish my whole education of, you know, public school and an undergraduate and graduate with something meaningless to me. And so, um, there was some very interesting research at the time uh, coming out of England also about studies in psychology where the, um, the researcher was part of the research. In other words, the, the researcher's experience, the researcher's reflection. And I thought this sounds perfect to me. I, I would like to do a study, not a statistical study, but I'd like to do a study of a particular um, engagement. You mentioned Viola Spolin. Viola Spolin was the uh, progenitor of um, improvisational theater. She wrote the book on improvisational theater. And I was part, very fortunate to be part of a very small group of people that she trained personally in what are called theater games. They're very widespread now. And I proposed to uh, run a research study of me doing the theater games in four classes of educationally uh, disadvantaged children in the Los Angeles school system. And it was gonna be a study of the behavioral um, and emotional changes that the students went through. These were um, uh, mostly about fourth grade, fifth grade, fourth grade students. It ended up being a study of what happened to the teachers when I started playing the games with the students because, and it was a perfect, uh, um, uh, I don't know what, I'm losing the word now, but it was a perfect dispersion of teachers from a teacher who was thoroughly engaged, got down on the floor, really into it, to a teacher, as soon as the kids started having fun, she stopped the games. Oh. So it was, you know, it was perfect for what I wanted to do, which was to show teacher engagement, student engagement. And the, the bottom line of this is, is that the challenge was to find a supervisor, a thesis supervisor that would back this because there would have been no there had been no dissertation, certainly at the U of T, written in the first person. There's an unheard of thing to write a psychology dissertation in the first person. And um, lo and behold, I approached a professor who had a stellar reputation as an experimental psychologist doctor study. I mean, he was, and he, he was also very aware of this trend toward more personal engagement. And he became my thesis supervisor. So again, I was so fortunate to have somebody with his background to be my, um, to be my, one second, I'm getting some kind of message here, to be my, um, my supervisor. So, um, yeah, so those were the things that were prominent in my, in my graduate education. I ended up writing a study that um, was very controversial. Uh, I was literally raked over the coals at my um, oral exam, but it has stood me instead for the last 50 years because everything has sprung that I've done since has basically sprung out of that work. So I, if, you, if part of this podcast is to give advice to potential graduate students in psychology, 
please consider doing something that's meaningful to you, that has legs, that really touches you emotionally, mentally, you know, intellectually, um, and socially, because this is something that you really are setting yourself up for a career that will have meaning. Well, you actually answered my next question was uh, basically, at this point in our discussion, do you have any advice for those who are interested in the field of psychology? And the advice that you gave, Dr. B, actually could be applied to anybody going into any graduate program. Yes. Do yes. something that is meaningful for you. you. We've mentioned a couple of areas or branches of study in psychology, applied psychology. You mentioned somebody who was known for experimental psychology. And my right. next question for you, for our audience is, many grad students and even undergraduate students considering going to grad school uh, try to decide, hey, how do I know which branch or field of psychology I should be going into? And I'm sharing just a website that actually shows some of the major branches. And of mm -hmm. course, applied is, is what you received your doctorate in as well. But um, any advice for those who are wondering, how do I decide which branch or area of psychology I should go into? Uh, well, it's a great question, and I would say anybody watching this podcast should directly go to your website because I, <laughs> it's so comprehensive uh, as a first step to just understanding the differences in these different programs. And I would bet that simply taking the time to read through what you've got on this website, which truly is exceptional, you, your, your compass needle would start to point in of a selection of these, which then you would narrow down by a couple of ways. One is to do some further reading. Um, it can be easier now, you know, with, with Google and the web, and then um, potentially look for programs. And then when the programs start to interview people, you know, yourself, um, maybe you can uh, connect with somebody in the department uh, to find out more, or before then actually, just do your research on the program itself at the university. Uh, is it in the location that you would favor? Um, are the people there doing research uh, in this particular area? But I think that uh, the question is such a good one because I do really believe that we have an inner compass that is actually um, underdeveloped. And this is part of my thing about it, American, North American education, just education generally that we don't really work to develop this inner compass, like what's speaking to me about myself in relationship to the world. So you know you have an interest in psychology, but there are, as you're showing, all these different potential branches, all of which make a contribution. And um, I think one way of waking up to your inner compass and the needle that it's pointing to is to just simply read through what you've written. It's a terrific resource. Well, the other thank you, first of all, thank you for that. The other thing that I would suggest too is if you are interested in uh, a certain type of question, answering a certain type of question, that also may lead you down the path to figure out, hey, Absolutely. I'm always interested in these questions. They all seem to fall under this area. And then yeah. the other thing that, um, you know, speaking to my other previous podcast guests is don't be afraid to reach out to a researcher who's actively looking at oh, some absolutely. of those same questions. Yeah. So anything else that comes to mind while we're kind of brainstorming for uh, uh, other people to uh, help figure out where is their niche? Um, well, uh, nothing um, 
Well, I mean, something that occurs to me is, is that it's probably going to land somewhere in your own ballpark of, of your life, like mm -hmm. something that has engaged you or interested you along the way. And, um, you know, because psychology is such a personal field, um, in many ways, more so than many other fields, and this is not disparaging other fields at all, but it is about the person. And, um, uh, you know, the word psychology is the science psyche is of the soul. So you're, you're tuning into something that's important to you. And I would say, pay attention to the things that, that spark you, that uh, are interesting to you. I would say also to um, uh, turn off the volume on negative voices, like, oh, you can't get a job in this and that's not gonna work. And, you know, do you know there are so many negative voices surrounding us and that we've been, we're being impounded by. Um, but the other part of your question has to do with selection of program. And I think because graduate education can be very expensive, I think you also have to be mindful of what you'd be able to afford, what kind of uh, debt burden you might uh, be able to carry and who provides um, financial assistance because there is financial assistance. And, um, you know, I'm gonna say, put in a special plug for people who are less advantaged, who may want to pursue a program in psychology. And believe me, the world really needs you to uh, help to uh, mentor, encourage further people who you could have direct contact with based on your background. Um, I'm, I, my background is being an inner city kid, so I've always had a connection to inner city, though my parents were in a more privileged position. But I think that's another consideration, you know, are also the people that you want to work with, what you want to do with them, all of those things factor in. And you may not have answers to all of them right at the beginning, but part of the business education, um, education, <laughs> I've just been writing about this, the word education comes from two Latin roots. One is educare and the other is educere. And they mean to draw forth and to train. So if you think about it for a minute, mostly what we do around the world is to train. We don't draw forth. Mm -hmm. And drawing forth means really drawing forth from the individual who he or she is, where he or she may be going, what attracts him or her, and then to train. So, you know, when I look back on my background, I had to really do the drawing forth myself. Fortunately, I had terrific mentors and teachers. And as I said, my supervisor, um, my thesis supervisor. So they assisted in, in that process. But you also want to connect with, and this goes back to your early question about considering programs. You also want to connect with people, particularly educators, but they could also be people in your family who know you, who see you, who want to encourage you to be yourself, to really find your way in the world. This is in short supply uh, in our culture and civilization generally, where we're very focused on getting ahead, competing, making money, all of these things which have certain importance, but they're not as critical ultimately as how you're going to serve the greater good. That should be really, that should really be the focus of education how you are gonna serve the greater good. We're all, we're all here to serve. I heard a, um, an interview of a philosopher recently who said, we're built to be givers, not takers. So a, a, a more in-depth answer to your question is, how can you give? What's the best way for you to give? 
And that can really help to direct you in your choices and in your, uh, the scope of your interests. And the best way to discover how you can best give is look at all the opportunities that are out there, mm-hmm. different programs, and you even mentioned funding as well. So let's yes. talk about that for a second. On previous podcast interviews, I've mentioned and discovered through my um, interviews, most of the time you're going to find more funding available if you apply directly to the doctorate program versus applying to the master's program. And so if you know you want to go on after your master's, um, most of my guests and I would encourage you to go ahead and apply to the directly to the doctorate program and instead of going to the master's and then trying to apply for some funding. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are you probably know a lot better than I do at this, at this point of time what the best advice is. So my thoughts are take your advice. Okay. All right. Now, I, I should mention, I see your nameplate on the uh, nice bookshelf behind you. So I know when you went on for your doctorate back then, I don't think the PsyD existed, no. um, but now the PsyD does exist. So if you have any thoughts on or suggestions to our audience about how do I decide if I want to go the PhD route or the PsyD route, uh, you have any thoughts on that? I don't. I mean, the only thought I have, because I'm, it, wasn't, it wasn't around then. And I certainly have uh, worked alongside uh, um, gr- uh, people with PsyD degrees. Um, I have also coached people with PsyD degrees for, um, say, the EPPP, you know, the uh, uh, exam toward licensing. Um, I, 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 and I've taught uh, in a couple of programs uh, as an adjunct teacher, a couple of PsyD programs. I don't really know the difference and I haven't done, you know, it would be ingenuous for me to say, well, uh, I just don't really know what the difference is. And I don't think I could advise someone uh, beyond saying to them, go meet, go talk to the school, go talk to, you know, the head program. If there is a dean, talk to her or him um, about what the difference is and see which one may appeal to you more. Uh, that's about the best advice I can give at the moment with this. No, that's good. And I'll, I, I'll add to that based on my experience and, and discussions with other uh, podcast interviewees and, and guests is number one, at the very beginning, when PsyD came out, uh, they thought that this was more leaning toward those who wanted to go into their own private practice, oh. get out of academic, uh, get off the academic route and, and do your own thing or government consulting. Uh, it's more of the applied uh, side of psychology. And then uh, it slowly has evolved where there's there, the, the line between the two has become blurred, where people are now becoming professors who have a PsyD, and those who have a PhD are now going into their own private practice and, and doing things outside of academic. And so when I was going through my graduate school, that's how I was told about it. Sure. Uh, and then it slowly has evolved. And so it really comes down to what you just said talk to your advisor, supervisor, your mentors, and, and get their opinion and maybe seek out those who received their PsyD and those who reach, received a PhD in psychology and ask them their opinion because it is slowly changing. And even by the time you hear this six months, a year from now, again, it might even change even sure. more from now until then. So that's one thing that I'd add. And then the last thing that I'd add is really you know, get back to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to combine this with your recommendation of 
think about how you can contribute to the world and contribute to the field mm -hmm. and do meaningful research. What do you want to do after you have your graduate degree? And that will help almost help you decide, should I go the academic route, PhD, non-academic, PsyD, but you can still change your mind. I have, I've had two guests on my uh, program where they had a PsyD and they're still in the academic world. And um, so it, it is kind of blurring the, the difference between the new now, so. Yeah, the other thing I would say, Brett, in relationship to this issue is just, you know, one's life um, is, a, is, a, is basically a story of growth. And we're, we, we, we're each growing more and more into who we are so that um, you don't have all the answers right away. And uh, you know what comes to mind is, is that I was in a clinically oriented program. Uh, my internship was in a, in a psych, psychological psychiatric clinic. Um, but my second uh, postdoc, my my postdoc uh, internship was in a small psychiatric hospital, and um, I was hired as a therapist. But what I did was. Um, uh, in the evenings, uh, I held a, a group for creating theater. So they gave me the space to do something that I really wanted to do. And that became then the, starting to um, um, develop the pathway into what I'm doing now. And that was unexpected, um, but welcome. Um, that led to another uh, experience where I was hired to come go to Australia and work with the um, teenagers in a psychiatric hospital there um, and uh, ended up making films with them. So, you know, you want to look for opportunities within any structure that you get engaged with that may be more creative if the, the powers that be are open, you know, to that. And um, uh, so it, this is all by way of saying that, that you may have a very definite idea of where you want to go and you may not have such a different view. Most people are probably somewhere in between, but being able and open to where the doors are opening or closing or where your heart is leading can all be very helpful and, uh, and um, instructive in how you, how you grow, how you develop. I should add one thing, very good uh, um, experience to share there. And I'm gonna get back to what resulted as a, um, of your work, you mentioned uh, psychiatric patients in Australia. And as a result of that work, you were invited, I believe, to be a resource artist at the Robert Redford Sundance Institute to collaborate with some writers and help realize their creative ideas as well. And so you have an intensive background in the performing arts, not only being a prodigious piano player, but you came back to it as well and and kind of found your passion and, and been able to uh, uh, utilize that passion. Before I switch and talk about that, though, I don't want to forget about one other question that I had. A lot of, a lot of students going into their graduate um, uh, program have to go through an interview. Yep. And um, a lot of times they put so much pressure on themselves. Oh, I have to know what I want to study, who I'm going to study with, how long it's going to take, what are my subjects? almost have to think about that ahead of time. One of my more recent interviews with um, a, uh, a podcast guest actually uh, went into that interview and was honest and said, 
honestly, I don't know what I'm going to study. I don't have enough information yet about the field that I'm interested in. As I go through this program, my hope is that you and the other uh, teachers and professors are going to help me discover my passion and my interests. And uh, the he, he got through that interview and what is accepted into the program. And I remember when I went and I went through my interview, I thought in the back of my mind, I had to know interpersonal communication and I want to study with Dr. Wheeler and I want to do this and this and this. And in retrospect, it's okay to be honest and say, I'm not sure because I don't have that information yet. And so hopefully I will find that out when I go through the program. And so I wanted to kind of ease everybody's tension or anxiety. Uh, you don't have to have all the answers. Just be true to yourself and answer honestly. Um, I think that's a great point. Recently, I was engaged to work with a cohort of, of 10 fourth-year medical students who were have been identified as a potential leaders in the field of medicine. And they, a very diverse group, um, and each of them is interested in a different field of medicine. And in um, one of the things that fourth year medical students face is getting matched to the right, um, uh, getting matched, it's called the match, to a, a, a residency. And there's so much nervousness related to the interview uh, so I called on a colleague of mine who was the um, provost of one of the top medical schools in the country. And I said, tell me, I'm going to meet this group of students. Tell me what I should say to them. And he said, be honest, be yourself. They're not perfect answers. If you try to make it sound perfect, it's going to make, you're making it sound perfect. And they have huge antennae for this. Just be honest. You know, mm -hmm. I think doing some research, having some clarity, of course, is essential. You don't want to be clueless. But I think just being honest about what is it that attracts you to the field? What is it you want to pursue and you want to look into? Um, this is really, they're looking for the person. They're not looking for the answer. They're looking mm -hmm. for the person who would be a, a good contribution to their program. And also remembering, too, that you can't be all things to all people. Any program is gonna be also looking for a mix of the people that have applied. So they're, you know, if they have a hundred applicants and they can only take four people, they're gonna be thinking very hard about what the mix of the four people are. And you have no control over that mm -hmm. um, because that this is something that you really can only be yourself. And if, if that fits their criteria, fine, but you can't prejudge it. You just don't know, just have to go ahead. Very good advice. Um, be yourself and, and um, you control the controllables is another way to say that and, and relax. Mm -hmm. I do have to ask this question. When you're working on your graduate uh, um, work and, and going through your PhD, did you have an idea in the back of your mind what you wanted to do immediately after graduating with your doctorate? Or did that kind of evolve while you were going through grad school? No, I didn't have an idea. I mean, the only idea that I had was basically a kind of conventional idea. I'm in a clinical program. I'm going to be a clinical psychologist, but it wasn't. It wasn't uh, that I was set on that. It was just, well, this is where I'm headed. So no, I didn't really have an idea. It much more evolved um, subsequent out of what happened before, meaning my educational experience, particularly in the training in, in England. 
um, the, the uh, dissertation and my working with Viola, and I started to see these different parts coming together. And that started to have more um, sense of where I might be headed. And these internships that I had, postdoc internships that I had of, you know, uh, getting patients to write plays and then producing them for the public and making the films, it all started to merge in a certain way and became clearer as I went as I went ahead. But I wanted to say something about that too, because I think the answer to your real answer to your, your question is is that you, you may know and you may not know, but know that you're headed somewhere. And you wanna be attuned to what's speaking to you, what's meaningful to you, what's moving you, what you wanna know more about, how do you wanna contribute? That's already inside of you. Some, some people would say that that's a done deal. In other words, where you're headed is already a known thing. I actually believe that, but I don't think that we're schooled in that direction. So. Um, stay open, stay, you know, curious, stay um, questioning, stay uh, challenging. And, um, you know, I would not have had those opportunities to do the plays or make the films if I didn't open my mouth and make the suggestion, you know, um, and I was ready to be told, you know, I was brought to Australia to do clinical work with these teenagers. And four days into it, I said to the uh, director of, this, of the clinic, who was a very esteemed psychiatrist, I, I'm afraid, you know, um, you brought me here all this way and all this expense, and it's this is work that I don't think this is what the, the, the kids in this place need. And she was open to that. And she said, well, what do you think that they need? And I said, I said, I don't know, but can I have a few days to think about it? And she said, yes. And I was able to talk with the uh, person who had brought me over and do a little more exploration. And then this answer rose out of nowhere, seemingly nowhere, I should say. So stay open, you know, mm -hmm. stay curious, stay available, and be bold. This is your life. This is your opportunity. So at what point did you know that you wanted to open your own private practice? Well, when I finished my, um, when I, <laughs> so I'm, I'm inner chuckling here because my stay in this, uh, my work in the psychiatric hospital ended after um, I had produced some very, very interesting work public that we performed for the public. And then I was called in um, to the director's office and I was very politely invited to resign. And why was I being invited to resign? I hadn't done anything you know, bad or wrong. But the truth is, is that the patients were getting better. Now, this sounds like a really, you know, it's a really tough thing to talk about. But they, you know, they, were, they weren't really interested in the patients getting better. I know that sounds just awful, but it was true. These, these kids, they were all in their early 20s, very wealthy families. Um, it was a cash cow. And, uh, and it was known, you know, we knew that. They were heavily medicated, most of them. But when we finished this experience, they wanted to go to a community college to study, you know, to do theater. They wanted to get into sound design. They wanted to exercise their creativity. And the hospital had no means to do that. And that was not their interest, truly was not their interest. And we had to part ways. So the next, the next step was for me to open a private practice, which I did in neighboring town. But I quickly found that this was just not, um, it, it just didn't suit me. 
uh, I didn't, I wasn't suited really to sitting and uh, listening to people all day. Um, and I was in um, my own analysis at the time and my analyst thought I should get supervision. So this was a very, very intelligent move. He recommended a supervisor for me and I went to see her. And in pretty short order, she said to me, she said, well, the reason you're so unhappy is because you're acting like you think a psychologist should act and it's not you. Mm-hmm. And I knew she said something truthful, but in a certain way, I didn't really know what it meant or implied, but what it implied was I'm a much more active guy. I like to be, I like to be very engaged. I'm talkative. I like to interact. And you know, that style of therapy, although it has changed certainly over 40, 45 years, uh, was not really in, in vogue at the time. Uh, I also had this background of working with the artists, as you mentioned, in Robert Redford's place, and working with people to draw out of them, again, the ed- word education, to draw out of them what was nascent inside that wanted to emerge. And I thought, well, this is, sounds, this is more me. This is more who I am, to have some kind of sense or vision about what is it that wants to emerge from this person, what's blocking them, and how can I assist to work with them to keep moving in the direction that they want to move in. And it was out of that, that the whole business of performance coaching mm-hmm. um, emerged. So one thing about that is that we tend to associate performance with being on stage or you know, being on a ball field, but performance really is about action. The performance needs to act. So it's how you can more freely, more engagedly, if that's the right word, um, act in the world, how you can, again, be of service. So that's how I got um, more along uh, along those lines. And that really developed more and more. Um, the, uh, the, that developed a particular niche because after I was licensed in Connecticut and New York, where I had my private practice, um, I uh, realized that I wasn't fulfilling something in myself, that there was something that was unformed. Un, um, and that was my, my engagement with music. And uh, that's when I decided to stop my work in psychology and do what I wanted to do, which was to go to music school. So the year my wife and I got married, we moved out to California and I got into a program, a graduate program in music composition. And, um, but I had to keep my psychology work going and the way that happened, and this is kind of, this, this, I, th- I hope this is instructive to listeners, is just following the train of where life is taking you and what's engaging for you. But at that time, even though I had two licenses, California had a, its own particular requirement after EPPP, after your 3,000 hours of postdoctoral experience, to um, have an oral exam. And um, so I had to take the oral exam. And I joined a study group where people practice giving answers. And I came to find out that the pass rate for first-time takers of this oral exam, the penultimate requirement for licensure in California, the pass rate was 18%. Mm. So this was astounding to me because in the group, people were answering questions, very adept clinicians, very sensitive, very complete. So what was happening that they would cross the threshold and they would fall apart? And I was able in the group to coach people because I could see what was happening, that they just disconnected from themselves. Um, 
the conditions of that exam were horrendous. It was, it was uh, administered in hotel bedrooms, usually by two older white men. So if you were a woman, or if you were a woman of color, or if you were a woman of color over the age of 40, your chances of passing that exam diminished exponentially. And it subsequently got litigated against and got removed, which was the most intelligent thing. But I started coaching people all over the state to pass that exam. And, and my study group, everyone went on to pass the exam and I failed it. And the reason I failed it, you could go listen to your tape, which I did in Sacramento. And I knew in the first two minutes why I failed because I was giving encyclopedic answers and they didn't want to hear encyclopedia. They just wanted you to answer the darn question. So I went back, you know, cost a lot of money. I was very angry, frustrated, all the things that everybody goes through who fails an exam that they're entitled to pass. And I, you know, flew through the second time and then coached people all over. So that became this whole niche in working with people who take tests and underperform on tests. So that's the title of my second book, which is uh, Crush Your Test Anxiety. And, um, I've developed a, an online a course for that now called Crush Your Test Anxiety, which is interactive and very, uh, it's a very robust course. And I hope people get to know it and take it because it's a real way you can help yourself. Well, you said a lot there and I, I, I'm trying to remember two follow-up questions while you were talking there. First, okay. before, I, before I do that though, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. And since this was the most recent, I'll go ahead and share your website. And here is your book, Crush Test Anxiety, How to Be Calm, Confident, and Focused on Any Test. And uh, not only the book, but you have some other related books out here that we're going to talk about shortly here. But uh, as you mentioned, this one uh, has become a, a very well-known um, book and I actually uh, read someplace that it was number one in its category on Amazon as well. And this that's one, correct, Brad. This, could you hit? Could you hit the courses thing in the nav bar that, uh, up there? I hit that one. Okay, so here are the two courses that have just gone up, and one is called Crush the EPPP because I've been working with many candidates over 30 plus years for the EPPP who have trouble passing it as many as seven or eight times. And um, this is a very uh, directed course to people who are taking the EPPP. I don't cover the content. That's very well handled in some of the courses, HABs, um, uh, Academic Review, other PrepJet, other courses. Um, and Crutcher Test Anxiety is a more comprehensive course generally for test takers. Well, the other thing that I wanted to mention here is, of course, you can explore his about page, gives you your story a little bit, and, and it's actually a fascinating personal story, how you overcame your own anxiety as well, uh, performance anxiety to be more specific. But uh, since I had these ready for you, here's Mills College, where you uh, received your uh, uh, master's uh, degree in music composition. And then uh, here was where you went to your undergrad. Uh, and then where you went for your uh, doctorate as well, University of Toronto. So we'll put these links up when we go live as well. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is that when you do look at your courses, you can scroll down and you can actually see a little bit more about um, you and then your social media, Dr. B and Be Your Best. I like that, uh, incorporating your uh, 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 Be Your Best in there. Twitter is on here as well. And then um, you have your LinkedIn here as well. 
one thing that I should mention is if you are interested a little bit more uh, learning more, here's a more recent YouTube video that you uh, had uh, a discussion on how to improve your mental health. And then you do have your YouTube channel here that uh, does talk about some other things on here as well. So I wanted to highlight that for our viewers and our audience members. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. The one thing that uh, we should get back to is we've been talking about you as a coach, an educator, and a psychologist and a performance psychologist as well. And so I should mention that as I... Um, looked through and did my research on your about page. When you were a young child, you were a prodigious piano player. We've already mentioned you immersed yourself in Mozart, Beethoven, and is it called Bartok? Am I Bartok. 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 Uh -huh. yet, yet when you were forced to perform in recitals and competitions, you even alluded to this when you were talking about your, your colleagues in that study class. They were just rambling off and you knew they knew what they were talking about. But when they got to the actual you know, interview, something in them, you know, forced them to break down and not be themselves. And so you found your niche in in helping them overcome that. And so you have been a performance psychologist and, and coach for over 44 years now, and you've helped Academy Award, Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize winners. Your list, as I uh, did some research, includes CEOs, business owners, athletes, dentists, attorneys, physicians, parents, everybody, all the way from opera singers to actors as well. What kind of help do your clients request the most? Well, it's such a good question. And um, I've thought about this since um, you were helping me uh, prepare by knowing the question. Uh, all of my work is based on the science of how stress affects human performance. That's why people call me the stress doctor. So any, any, student who's listening to this podcast has probably heard of the yerkes dodson curve, which is, is a bell curve where if this is, um, it, it studies the um, relationship between stress and performance. And when stress is too low or too high, performance suffers. So um, I have really made a, an inroad into creating a training program that does two things. It trains people to become aware when their stress is building and they're sliding off, over to the side of too much stress and performance is suffering, uh, training them to be aware and then also giving them tools, nine tools to get back into that middle bit. That middle bit is what athletes call the zone. When athletes talk about it, they tend to talk about it in terms that one of my teachers called misty moisty. Oh, wow, man, I get into the zone. It's not, it's a, it's a state of conscious attention to um, what's actually going on inside of you. So all of this is also based on a different definition of stress uh, that I have been working on for years, which is stress is not the things that are happening outside of you. That's called life. The triple P, your children, taxes, the government, you, you can't change all of that. That doesn't work. It's stress is really caused, your, experience of stress is caused by your reaction to those things. Mm -hmm. And simply put, stress is a function of disconnection. So when people crossed over the threshold for the oral exam, this is the first time I saw it. And then I actually applied it to myself. The stress level went sky high and they got disconnected from who they are. They were facing two examiners who stared at them, you know, like this, or made faces. They, so the examiners would go things like, 
you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and they got disconnected. So stress went way up, disconnection, and then they had no tools to get themselves back. So what I did was create a very robust, scientifically driven uh, training program that people can get into and stay in the zone. It, it looks like, you know, we're going to get to your other uh, books here and then your forthcoming book as well. Um, one thing I should mention is that when we talk about your, I think it's called a master's class or what was it called? It was called the master, yeah, master class. Called, yeah, that was given to by the social media group that I engaged called the master class. I, th- I guess it's a good term. I, I haven't really processed that one yet, but you know, <laughs> to take advice from people much younger than myself. So the master class is the crush your test anxiety on that page that we talked about uh, the Dr. B's courses. Um, do you have any other master classes that you have done? And if so, where would we find those? Well, um, so the other one, of course, is uh, Crush the EPPP. Um, because this model is really applicable to everybody, because it is scientifically driven, um, I would like to produce more courses for athletes or for business executives or for dentists all the people that I've worked with that I've applied the same model to. So what would change are the situations, the vignettes that would be incorporated into the course. So people could see themselves and their situation, their life situations reflected in the course. So um, uh, I would say there are any number of courses down the line. Um, uh, creating a good course, as I discovered, is very, very time intensive, great, you know, it, it requires a lot of thought to be um, comprehensive and to be uh, useful to the people who are taking it. So, um, I sh- but I would say, I just basically to answer your question, you could, uh, anybody could enroll in Crush Your Test Anxiety or um, read the book because that's the model is, is very well articulated in those two places. So I've given the book to, or recommended the book to, uh, other people, attorneys or dentists, um, because you just have to take the word test and think about it as crush your performance anxiety or crush, you know, whatever anxiety you have about that. But that's why people come because they're, they're, they're getting stressed out. They're not performing to their potential. They're not enjoying their work as they could or should. And um, it's about getting them back on track. Well, I should share the screen again. I mentioned you have a couple other books out there, and I actually like them because uh, one of them is talking about uh, uh, test success, and then a teen's guide to success was in 2014, and then the following year, 2015, stressed out for parents. And um, so if you have any teenagers that uh, you need to help or yourself, and Maybe I'm wrong here, Dr. B, but the crush test anxiety is kind of a culmination of both these other books in addition to applying the knowledge that is out there in the field to help you overcome your performance anxiety as well. Mm, Yeah, Um, I would say turn around a little bit uh, rather than being the culmination, it's the seed from which the others sprung. Okay, right. Um, And as I said, there are going to be other courses that are going to be based on the same model. Well, that sounds good. That leads me to my next question about, I know you're working on another book and it's called The Threefold Path to Optimal Living, which will, be le- which will I believe, be released in 2024. 
tell us a little bit more about this book. Well, um, so what I've discovered um, through my own uh, experience training, um, and I'm a deeply spiritual person, meaning that I'm a student of the Indian scriptures, the Vedas. And uh, this book goes a step further, which is um, how, what, what leads to optimal living? And the answer is pretty simple. It's a simple progression. It's accept, grow, and serve. So what does that mean? Very briefly, accept means when you can accept what comes to you in life and not fight it, not wish it were different, not try to change it, but just accept it. And accept doesn't mean like or love. It just means I accept this. This is what's happening right now. Then it opens the door to considering this question, how can I grow from this? Because if we think of it, we're part of nature. Everything in nature is in a process of growth. And we are always in a process of growth. So my, my belief and experience is, is that everything that happens to us can contribute to our growth if we ask the question, how can I grow from this? Not why is it happening to me? What did I do to deserve it? Not that. How can I grow from this? So when I work with people who are, say, taking the HLP and fail multiple times, that's one of the first things that I handle with them. How can you grow from your experience rather than moan and, and, and go on and on about like it's costing too much money and I don't want to do this anymore? And all those things are true, but that's not the helpful way to, to progress which is to say, how can I grow from this? And with every single person, with every challenge, there's an opportunity for growth. Every challenge, it can be big opportunities or small opportunities. It can be as simple as learning how to stay more in touch with your breath so that your, your, um, your anxiety does not tr get triggered to uh, how you become more organized in your preparation, whatever it is. And then the last step, so it's accept, grow, and the last step is serve because we're all meant to serve. So our own growth, implicit in our own growth, is that it's leading us to serve other people. And when we get that progression going, it just works. And this is not, I didn't invent this. This is, this is scriptural, actually. So um, that's what that's about. I am also working on another book, I have to say, which actually took, has taken a leave for a little while. It's called The Well-Trained Husband. Um, and it's a, it's a how-to manual for men who want to be better husbands. So this is born out of my own experience uh, as a husband for 30 years and my, um, a lot to do with my own background and family situation. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a Chinese woman and the, the combination of a Jewish husband and a Chinese wife is a little bit of a recipe for mixing oil and water. And we have really, we've come a long way in the 30 years. And it's because of our commitment to this working. So um, that's, what's on the, that's what's on the books right now. Well, I am hoping that you finish that book sooner rather than later. I'm actually engaged to be married with oh. a Vietnamese woman. And oh. so I've already experienced the uh, differences <laughs> in, in views and culture. And right. I definitely want to become a better uh, husband for her. Okay. Too, so I'll send you a complimentary copy, Brad. I appreciate it. So did you ever think, Dr. B, that you would become an author while you're going through your undergrad and graduate uh, studies? Did you ever think that you'd become a an author, a well-known performance psychologist and coach, 
and even more so a recognized keynote speaker. I haven't even talked about that. You you go out and you're a keynote speaker as well. So that's kind of a, a facetious question, but it's kind of reflecting on your career now that you've been doing this for quite a long time and it's very successful and you found your niche, it sounds like, and you were able to recognize who you are and that advisor actually almost challenged you and said, That's the right. reason you're unhappy is A, B, and C that made right. you think. So No, I didn't. I, I didn't um, imagine this. Uh, it's all the outgrowth. If we reverse engineer it from serve to accept, right, to grow to accept, um, I'm, I'm, all the things that I'm doing are engaged with, with uh, service. Um, and uh, I... Um, so no, everything grew, everything grew out of what what happened before. Um, the the one part of my life that is still in the process of really growing is the music side, because I got derailed, as you mentioned at fourteen. I didn't like performing. No one helped me with it, with the anxiety that I experienced, and so that stopped very abruptly. And even though when we came to California thirty years ago, I got in this program. Um, I couldn't turn my life into being a composer because we were newly married and I was 46 years old, but I opened a nonprofit uh, for singers and uh, I'm, I'm getting back into um, music in a bigger way. So what I have dreamed about is uh, doing more in the world of opera and musical theater and the things that I, that I love doing and love working with people on. I should mention that in my research, I found that you have directed theater at Juilliard School and the National Academy for Dramatic Art in Sydney. And as you just mentioned, um, you are an award-winning composer and a master coach at the San Francisco Opera. Uh, you're the founder and artistic director of the Singers Gym, which you mentioned was the nonprofit training workshop for professional singers to have more vitality, spontaneity, and connection in their work. You've also not only helped people outside of your family, but I read that you also helped your three younger siblings with their successful artistic careers. Your sister, Didi, uh, Frenchie in Greece, uh, for those of you who can relate to that. Your brother, Andrew, is a senior photographer for the NBA. And then your youngest brother, Richard, leading roles in, in uh, Metropolitan Opera. And you already mentioned your wife, Sukwa is uh, a novelist, I believe. So I uh, just wanted to give you a little bit more background there. What do you love most about your job, Dr. V? Oh, I just love people being happy. <laughs> I love people uh, fulfilling their, their themselves, you know, as being fulfilled, as learning how, and learning what has gotten in the way of that, and that, uh, and not going into those old habit patterns, because we're all habits, that's all we are. But some of our habits are, I don't call them good or bad, they're unproductive. And I, I really love um, working with people to identify the unproductive habits so that you can start to put a productive habit in place. You know, an unproductive habit, for instance, would be, say, for a test taker, I'm a, I'm a terrible test taker, right? So that, that belief system is actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, uh, you know, a simple fix on that to start with is how about saying, to date, I've had trouble taking tests. That's very different from a terrible test taker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love seeing how people when we, I must say we, because I'm doing this all the time, when we're, when we're 
uh, into an unproductive habit that's leading us to a dead end of feeling crappy, miserable, you know, unfulfilled, frustrated, that we start to step back, witness what we're doing, and then get the uh, assistance that we need, and then start making tracks. You can't just stop an old habit. You have to replace it with a different habit that then becomes the habit. So what I love most about my job are two things, actually. I love seeing people um, progressing and, and becoming fulfilled because they're, they're really nurturing their, their deepest self. But I would also say what I love about my job is it's constantly challenging me on my unproductive habits. One, my, that analyst that I mentioned, he said in the, one of the first sessions, he said, your problems are going to walk through the door. And I didn't really understand it, but it's been absolutely true. If I look at every person that I have coached over the last 40 plus years, there's something about that person that's challenging me to grow. And I would say, you know, to, to sum up here that getting into psychology as a profession is very challenging and you have to be ready to take on the challenge of your own growth. It's not a one done deal. It's not like you learn something and then you can just keep applying it to people. It doesn't work that way, I don't think. I think that if you wanna be consistent with what's coming out of your mouth, which is what you're giving somebody, you wanna be consistent with what you're doing yourself because that inconsistency, if there is one, is going to be felt and the, 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 is a break in integrity. So I would say it's so important if you're considering a, um, a field, being in the field of psychology, to be ready to take on the challenges of your own growth. And some of this happens in graduate programs and some of it doesn't happen in graduate programs. So that might be something else you would look into, like what kind of supervision you would have. Is there a requirement for you to be in therapy? What are the services available to you? All of those things, because they're important. Yeah, and what other training can you develop in yourself to become better at what you're doing? Beautiful. I know, I know uh, when I was going through graduate school, I was actually helping people overcome their uh, performance anxiety for public speaking. And we went through, I trained myself in SD or systematic desensitization and visualization. And one of the things that a lot of students going through grad school or even undergrad is I'm so nervous when I take my tests. Well, there's certain things that you can do. And one of them is visualization and or do you know where you're going to be taking the test? Go to that place, sit down and see where you're going to be seated so you can visually see yourself taking that test and passing it and, and going forward with that as well. So uh, educating yourself and training yourself and, and becoming better at what you do is going to help you and the people that you're coaching as well. So. Near the end of all of our podcasts, Dr. B, I like asking a couple fun questions. And so I'll start with one that is, I've already found out some unique stuff about you, but I'm going to ask you, tell me something uh, that is unique about yourself. Well, let's see, what comes to mind is um, I'm 74 years old and six years ago, we gave up our car. So I go everywhere on my bicycle. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it's great. We save a lot of money. Um, I'm getting some exercise. Um, you know, it's it it surprises people when I arrive at big meetings and whatever uh, on a bicycle. Um, but that's I think that's kind of unique. Well, here is your Instagram uh, account, and I did see this uh, oh, yeah, picture right. here. 
And here's one where you're uh, uh, riding around on a bike. And then even before then, I think you're uh, biking around and eating in this one, but there are a, a bunch of other uh, pictures out sure. here. Here's yeah. when you came out with your crush your test uh, uh, anxiety book and, and a lot of good feedback there as well. So uh, it's fun to look through uh, different pictures. This might or might not be your current bike that you have. You might. Oh have yeah, up. that's my bike on the in a Bart, uh, which is the uh, San Francisco Bay Underground. Um, okay. That bike got stolen. I miss it. Oh no! Did you, <laughs> did you replace it? You you must have a new one. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. That's something unique as well. I, I don't know if I could give up my car. My my uh, I, I don't think my wife would be happy or soon to be wife would be happy saying, oh, we got to take public transit or, or bike. No, my wife, well, fortunately, my wife doesn't drive. So that was one of the intention. Well, the other difference between where you are and where I am, Dr. B, is you're in California. I'm in Minnesota. So oh, big uh, difference. Uh, Huge. Big difference. <laughs> Huge. Uh, Another fun question that I ask my guests is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Term, principle, and theory. Um, what comes to mind is that uh, was a, a question that a doctor in India asked, um, which he said, are you living in an I world or a we world? And um, if you think about it for a minute, we're all living in a we world, but there's such a significant um, part of the world's population that lives in an I world, which is part of why we have so much strife and contention and, and difficulty in the world. So I would say a favorite term is that you start living in a we world. That's a nice answer. I, 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 that's a unique answer as well. What's one of the most important things you've learned in your life so far? Um, well, uh, one of the most important things is, um, I would say, I, I'm thinking of how to say this, it is to um, be limitless. I didn't want to put it in a negative way, like say, don't put limits on yourself but be limitless, to be open to possibility, be open to ideas. You talked about doing guided imagery. So everything goes on in our imagination before it emerges in the world. Everything that you're looking at or touching started in someone's imagination. And so if we were limited, we wouldn't have all the things around us that we have. But think about that on the personal level. If we are limitless, then who knows what we're capable of. That's for us to discover. I like that answer. Do you have any other advice for those who are interested in the field of psychology or in particular applied psychology? Uh, well, I mean, it, it sounds very simple or even simplistic, but you really do have to love working with people. For all of our, and I'm gonna say there, for all of our limitations, for all of our hangups and glitches and everything, um, you really have to have a lot of heart and wanting to, to see people um, move, to see people develop, to see people be fulfilled. Uh, you know, some people are not people oriented. My wife is one of them. We're totally different that way. She's a writer, 
pretty much lives a hermit type of existence, um, not really interested in socializing. And there's, you know, for a while I had some big judgments on that. I don't anymore, but just different. But I think if you're going to choose this field, you really have to be interested in people and in your own growth in working with them. So Dr. B, if you had the time or money to do one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Uh, well, I'm doing it. I'm working on a Broadway musical for my sister. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. I think I got disconnected here. Um, well, you're here. I can hear you. Oh, actually, now I, I think you got disconnected. I heard you a second ago. Okay. So the question was, if I had one thing to do, was that it? or? Yeah, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Well, it will be to complete this uh, Broadway musical that I've been working on for my sister. Uh, remains to be seen if she wants to do it, but I want to complete it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Any anticipated uh, uh, date of completion? Um, no. It, uh, let's just say in this lifetime. How's that? Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I applaud you for doing that. That's uh, going into a realm that I haven't even um, even discovered. Uh, I'll put it in a positive note, uh, discovered yet in me. So uh, maybe yeah. it's there or not. Sure. Hey, Dr. B, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast? No, I'm very, uh, thank you for asking. I'm, I'm, you know, from the time that you invited me and I looked at the website and I wrote to you about this is a much needed resource, you know, certainly... Uh, was not around when I was considering, you know, going into this program and, you know, basically fell into it, but you're providing an extremely rich resource. I mean, again, that page of all the different programs and the descriptions is so, is so rich, you know, it's so good. So I, I just want to applaud you and thank you for what you're providing, um, because you really are giving back in a very, very genuine way. Well, I appreciate the compliment. We're uh, ever increasing the content on the website as well. And our overall goal is to, hey, if you're interested in the field of psychology at all, go yeah. ahead and go here. And we want to be that first place where you can start researching and finding out where your niche may be. So, yeah. Ben, thanks again for your uh, sharing your story and your advice with us. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you more and learning more about your background and your journey. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Totally pleasure for me. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.